So, 4th of July, here we are. We um, take a lot of pains here at The Effect to make sure that we keep church and state separate. Uh, you know, there's, there's churches that often marry the two, politics and, and religion, and we don't do that, you know, because we, we are really focused on the micro instead of the macro here, which makes a big difference in our, in our approach, a difference in the choices that we make. But in the run-up to 4th of July, there was a connection that I made that I want to uh, try to share with you this morning and see if I can get this across. We live in such a cynical age. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe we need to define cynical because sometimes cynical is used incorrectly. Cynical means that, um, or cynicism, I suppose, a better way to put it. Cynicism is believing that everybody acts out of their own selfish motives and self-interest. Regardless of what they say, regardless of what the published idea is, we all know that they're acting out of their own motives. And this permeates into our society. It permeates into our lives. Now, there's a lot of reason for cynicism, and there's a healthy cynicism that we need to uh, apply to life, especially macro life. When we look at uh, politicians and heads of state and the things that they do and everything, I understand that. But it has gone so far in this direction that it's difficult for us to really take anything seriously anymore. I mean, there is a consistent and, and just about systematic tearing down of our founding principles, a tearing down of the ideals, of the core values um, that our country was founded with and which sustained it for, for quite a long time. I mean, I remember when I grew up, and a lot of you can remember the same thing, the way that we were taught history, the way that we were taught about the founding fathers of our country, you know, the way that we were taught to pledge allegiance to the flag, you know, under God and everything, um, the way that we were taught was so different. Our institutions, our teachers, our media, it all sort of worked together, at least to affirm what was going on in our country, what was going on in our institutions from the federal to the state to the city to the church to the school. Everything seemed to to work together, and we're seeing that being deconstructed. It's deconstructed. And it's, it's hard for us to look back at something like the Declaration of Independence and see it for what it is. The cynicism tells us that because the founders were flawed men, and of course they were flawed men, they were men, right? Because they didn't always practice what they preached, because their blanket of freedom didn't extend to everyone, that somehow that invalidates the document itself. But this isn't true. Even though it was performed imperfectly, even though it was never established perfectly, doesn't mean that what is written on the page and, and the principles that are being enunciated there aren't true. This is the same thing that happens to the church when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, the church has been corrupted. The church has been done badly. All we have to do is take a look at church history and you see how badly church has been done, and not just the Christian church, but every church, every institution. It's full of flawed people. At the top, there are people who want power for its own sake. And so things happen that have nothing to do with the founding principles, that have nothing to do with the sacred text. And yet it's an opportunity in our cynical world to throw out everything, to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And we have to be careful to make distinctions here. 
Yes, there is reason for cynicism because our institutions are broken, our institutions are flawed. But if we don't have any kind of founding principle, if we don't have core values that we can say unequivocally are true, then we're really lost because we have nothing to come back to. 241 years ago next Tuesday, a document was ratified by the then Continental Congress, and it's been guiding our, our, our nation ever since. And I want to read a little bit of this, and I put it into the bulletins, because I think there's something there that we can use to kind of get back to. And this is not just political. This is going to be spiritual. This is going to be personal. But Jefferson put in these first three paragraphs some just bedrock truths about the human condition, bedrock truths about people living together in community, living together under a shared governance, that I think have something to tell us absolutely every single day. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So what's going on here just in this first paragraph? The first thing that you see is that Jefferson and the Congress assume that these political bands, this contract, this, this government that all have agreed to, is not divinely instituted. It doesn't come from God. It's not destined. It's not indisputable. It's not incontestable. The bands, the contract, the alliances exist to only serve the people, to serve the people and to only serve the people, and will only stand as long as they're fulfilling that function, as long as they continue to serve the people. It's just like Jewish law that Jesus was dealing with, remember? When he was breaking the Sabbath code and getting you know, gigged for it by the, the religious authorities, what did he tell them? He said, you know, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The law was made to serve people, to serve humankind, not for people to slavishly follow the law. The law was this funnel, the law was this guide, the law was this tool that people could use to live in a group, in harmony, successfully, in a way that allowed each person to be able then to express their own individual spiritual connection. But it gets all back to front. The government doesn't exist to lord it over the people. The people don't exist to just serve the government. The government serves the people and only for as long as it's actually doing that. Any contract is only as good as all parties to the contract make it. Right? Even marriage is the same way. I was taught about marriage as a, as a Catholic growing up and reaffirmed as an evangelical when I came to the evangelical church much later in life that marriage was instituted by God. And once it was instituted, once it was, I guess, ratified in heaven, it could never be broken. And if it was broken, you needed one specific reason. And if you didn't have that reason, then you couldn't get married again. There were all these rules. But when you really look at it, 
Marriage is a contract. Well, no, it's between two people. Isn't it a micro thing? The relationship is micro. But the contract is macro. It's an expression to society. It's an expression to the community. It's a contract that helps to bind all the groups together. But it's only as good as the two parties to the contract make it. And if the contract is no longer serving the marriage, no longer serving the family, the children, and the community that it surrounds, then it should be taken down. And that runs so counter to maybe what many of you think. It runs so counter to what I was taught. But common sense and what Jesus actually taught when you put it into the context of the first century Jewish life, we realize that's exactly what he was telling us. There is a spiritual component to any promise that we make, obviously. But the contract in the macro has to fulfill its function or something needs to be altered. The second thing that's happening in here is that Jefferson is stating that there are human rights that derive directly from the laws of nature and the God who created that nature, the God who created those laws. They don't come from us. They don't come from government. They come directly from God. And this is incredibly important. And then in the next paragraph, he's going to start to list these. Listen. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Gosh, don't you wish people still talk that way? God, I love that. And it's just beautiful. Jefferson is saying, because there are human rights that are derived from God, that are now unalienable. There are these self-evident truths. The first one is that all men are created equal. Now the cynics are going to say, yeah, well, it was only the white guys that were created equal because these were slaveholders and women were excluded from voting. That's all true, absolutely true. Does it make what is stated here untrue? All men, all women, everyone is created equal. And we have equal protection under the law. We must have that for everybody. Whether we agree with them or not, whether living a lifestyle that we agree with or not, they must have equal protection under the law because God created them equal. That is a divine right that we can't mess with. He calls them unalienable rights. There's a word that we don't use too much more, but we do use alienate, right? If you alienate someone, what are you doing? Well, you're ticking them off, you know, you're turning them off, you're estranging them, you're distancing them, you're dividing yourself from them, something that you did, did that. But if you look at alienate in a legal sense, it means to transfer property rights from one person to another or to another group. So something that is unalienable can't do all those things. We cannot be distanced from, divided from, estranged from these rights that are given to us by God. And they can't be transferred to someone else or some other group. 
because they are divinely instituted. And then the state exists to protect these rights and only derives its power from the consent of those people who are being governed by that power. Basic, right? But this flies right in the face of what was present still, even in the 18th century, the divine right of kings. Now this is a theory that said (coughs) that kings derived their power directly from God and not from the people that they governed. Therefore, to rebel, to have a revolution against a king was the worst possible, not only political crime, but also a sin directly against God. Jefferson is taking this thing and completely turning it around. And obviously there have been political philosophers before him that he is borrowing from that just takes that and turns it around. No. Any government only derives its power from the consent of the governed. The people are the ones that put this together for their own protection, for their own common good. And when that government no longer serves that, it needs to go away. But then he tempers this. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. What's he saying? Revolution should never be taken lightly. Why? Because any revolution is going to cause much more harm, much more disturbance, much more dislocation in the process until it finally creates the good that it was designed to create, if it creates it at all. A revolution is a difficult thing, an upsetting thing, a completely destructive thing. It may be necessary but you're not going to want to jump into it unless everything else has been exhausted. Every other avenue has been exhausted. And then he says something that is so profound. He says that people will continue to suffer abuse as long as they possibly can before they will finally take the road to change the things that are abusing them. And why do we do this? Well, of course it's out of fear. It's out of fear of the unknown. It's out of fear of self-preservation. Are we going to be able to live through this? What's this going to do? What am I going to lose? All of these questions float as we look at what we need to do to really move in a completely new direction. Most of us need to hit some sort of bottom. Most of our societies need to hit some sort of bottom before any new way of living and the road to get there seems less frightening or less painful than what is already being suffered. And the same is true in personal life. Think about that for a second. What happens here between people and nations is also happening in our personal lives. We as individuals see the better path, see a new way of going, or at least see the dead end of where we're headed long before we're willing to change, before we're willing to repent and move in a new direction. We fear the revolution. We fear the unknown, and rightly so. 
And we'd rather suffer with what is familiar than risk the unknown. Now, in human relationships, we have a word for this. It's called codependency. You know what a textbook definition of codependency is? It's right here. It's the tendency to behave in overly passive or excessively caretaking ways that negatively impact one's relationships and quality of life. It's holding on to what we have for fear of all sorts of things. Fear of the unknown. Fear that there may not be anything else better. Fear that we aren't adequate to the task. So many fears that hold toxic relationships in place, both in the micro and the macro. We do this as individuals, we do this as families, groups, churches, and nations. Some of this is good. As Jefferson says, you don't want to just be throwing everything over at every turn. But at some point, there needs to be a change if the abuses get too difficult for too long. And we do this because of fear. We said that. Fear that we will lose what little we have, that we won't make it through the transition, that we don't deserve any more than we already do have. Think about the Hebrews leaving Egypt under Moses, right? They get to the desert and they start whining, you know? Even though, yeah, we were enslaved by the Egyptians for three to four hundred years, we had to make those clay bricks and we got beaten and we got squished under the rocks and everything else that you can think of from the Ten Commandments movie that they had to do, right? But we had our leeks and we had our onions, you know? We had a roof over our head. It's amazing what we do. Even when we are transitioning out of the most heinous type of oppression, it is still difficult for us to go through what we need to go through to get to the other side. And we keep looking back fondly to whatever little we had, even in the midst of that horrible experience. So what motivated these American colonists to revolt against what was then the global superpower of their day? This little colony, you know, these about three million people rebelling against a superpower. Well, it was decades of abuse, as we were talking about. Taxation without representation, quartering their armies, forcing the people to not only to quarter the armies, but to feed them and pay for their upkeep, all without their consent, all without their approval. But what that led to was a realization that there are unalienable rights that were being violated here. There were rights that were divinely given that should not and could not be taken away. And so the founders absolutely believed in these rights from God. And that gave them the courage to endure. That gave them the courage to go forward. That gave them the sense of divine providence and protection that was going to carry them through what was going to be a difficult ordeal with the hope of success. So how do we now, finally, mount a personal revolution against our own spiritual codependence that's keeping us in place? to be able to move in new directions that we know will be difficult, we know will be disturbing or dissonant. And we can look to Jesus. That's something we can always do. Jesus was a revolutionary, right? He had a life. He had a vocation. We don't know much about it. There's 18 unaccounted for years in his life. But he was a carpenter, the son of a carpenter, or some scholars say it would have been a mason, some kind of tradesman of that nature. So he had a vocation, he had a way to make a living. And then at some point, 
He risked it all. He was willing to throw all of that away to pursue his unalienable rights. What rights? He doesn't talk about rights, does he? Well, Jesus called his unalienable rights Abba. He called his unalienable rights kingdom because he realized that ultimately the unalienable right that comes from God is his perfect love, his absolute love. After Jesus is baptized, the the, the scriptures say that the Spirit impels him, drives him into the wilderness. And it's in that wilderness, in that desert experience, that he finally comes into direct experience and contact with exactly who his father is. And he realizes at that moment that's who he is as well, or sometime in there, most likely. Everybody debates, you know, what did Jesus know and when did he know it? But when he comes out of that desert, he knows exactly who he is. He and the Father are one. And the love that he proclaims, the love that he is now able to live unequivocally in his own life to the point of his own death is the unalienable right, the right that cannot be taken away, estranged, divided, separated from us, from any of us. This love. This completely transformed the direction of Jesus' life. And then he modeled it for his followers. And they were risking everything and were risking losing what they had and their livelihoods and their families as they moved in a direction. And then, as the time went on, a few generations out, the, the whole movement, the followers of Jesus started to lose their way. They gained more numbers, they gained more money and influence, they gained more power, and eventually they gained the Roman Empire and they became corrupted and they lost their way. And you fast forward a thousand years and here's another little man who realizes that something is wrong. And through the course of his life, he realizes that there is an unalienable right that he was not claiming for himself as a son of privilege And he risks it all. He lets go of the familiar trappings of his life. He lets go of the the privilege that he has inherited from his earthly father in favor of this pure love that can't be alienated from him or from any of us. But again, it didn't last but a few generations until his followers started to do the same thing. I wanted to read just a little bit from a paragraph from someone named Morris West who's writing about Francis of Assisi. He says this, a man like Francis of Assisi, for instance, what does he really mean? A complete break with the pattern of history, a man born out of due time, a sudden unexplained revival of the primitive spirit of Christianity. The work he began still continues, but it's not the same. The revolution is over. The revolutionaries have become conformists. The little brothers of the little poor man are rattling alms boxes in the railway square or dealing in real estate to the profit of the order. Of course, that isn't the whole story. They teach, they preach, they do the work of God as best they know, but it's no longer a revolution. And I think we need one now. Do you see how it changes Francis was willing to let everything go, to live in abject poverty, to move not only to the the lower class part of the town, but out into the fields, in the 
in conjunction with the leper colonies, the outcasts, the untouchables of his society. He made this stark statement with his life exactly as Jesus made the stark statement with his life that there is something else there that is perceivable when we start to clear out everything else and really move in this revolutionary way. Every generation needs to do this. Every person needs to do this. There is no substitute. There is no way to have this received or handed down person to person, generation to generation. Each one of us must experience for it for ourselves and take the revolution to our own interior streets. Because if we're not willing to do this, we are not going to experience the depth of these unalienable rights that God gives us. If we can't do this, you know, we can live our lives, but we'll still live under a tyranny of fear to a certain extent. And that will keep us spiritually codependent. That will keep us passive. That will keep us stuck. And so the question then should be, you know, how can we do this? How can we move in this revolutionary way that Francis shows us, that Jesus showed us first? How does that look in our day? How does that look in our lives? How do we go about doing this? Well, like the colonists, first, there has to be a perceived need. We have to feel that there's something missing. We have to endure long periods of loss of life and liberty and happiness. The pain is what eventually motivates us. There's a great saying in in the AA community that we progress at the pace of pain. Have you ever heard that one before? I love that. We progress at the pace of pain. It is the pain. It is the felt need. I had a pastor who called it divine dissatisfaction. Divine dissatisfaction is what moves us, showing us that there is something more, that we're not completed yet. And the truth is we're never completed. There's always cycles and cycles and cycles within cycles. And to make friends with that process is part of what it means to really engage in a spiritual journey. But that felt need is going to move us forward. And the pain will eventually make us aware that we're not living as we could possibly live, maybe as we should possibly live, that there's another quality of life that can be ours and has been endowed to us by our Creator that we can claim if we're willing to let go of the life that we already have, if we're willing to move in this revolutionary way. A little bit from Richard Rohr on the same subject. It is said that Francis of Assisi's great prayer, which he would spend whole nights praying, was simply, Who are you, God? And who am I? Who are you? Who am I? All night long, who are you? Who am I? In this contemplative state of prayer. Contemplative prayer helps us to live into, live into these questions. Not just think about them, not just understand them, but live into them. Who are you, God? Who am I? Contemplative prayer helps us to live into these questions as we observe our minds in contemplation. We first recognize how many of our thoughts are defensive, oppositional, paranoid, self-referential, or in some way violent. Until we recognize how constant that mind is, we have no motivation to let go of it. No motivation for the revolution. Contemplation teaches us to say, that feeling is not me. 
I don't need that opinion to define me. I don't need to justify myself or blame someone else. It's stepping away from all of that. Seeing it for what it is. Just a a phantom figment of our egoic mind that just spins and spins. There's a deeper us. Gradually, we learn to trust the wounds and the failures of life, which are much better teachers than our supposed successes. It's all a matter of letting go and getting out of the way. Teresa of Lisieux would call it surrender and gratitude. Letting my mind accept and surrender to the mystery that I am to myself. It doesn't need to quickly categorize this mystery as sinful, wrong, and evil. Or good and meritorious and wonderful. It just is. We don't need to put it in boxes to judge it anymore, to constantly be objectifying every moment and every situation that we move through. We just let it wash over us. It just is. When I can no longer hold myself up, I fall into the mystery of God and let God hold me. When I no longer name myself right or wrong, I let someone else name me. When I allow God to keep revealing the deeper mystery of mercy and grace and love to me, I don't categorize or hold God too easily, too quickly, as if I understand God, as if I've got God in my pocket. Those who allow God to reveal God's self are the very ones who know that God is love. They know that God is not a harsh judge or a conditional lover, that God's love is an endless sea of mercy and unconditional acceptance. The deeper you go, the more you fall into the mystery. And as you fall into the mystery of an ever-loving God, you are able to accept the mystery of yourself. And as you accept the mystery of yourself, you fall into the mystery of God. You don't know, and it doesn't matter which comes first, horse, cart, egg, chicken, people who love God themselves and everybody else. People who love themselves and everyone else also love God. It's like that. This is typical mystical language. You know, it's all grasshopper kind of stuff. And it's hard to understand. It's hard to make sense of. It's hard to see how it may be relevant to us. But it deeply is. It deeply is. Ask yourself, are you feeling that there must be more to life? Are you at a place in your life where like that song, is that all there is? You know, is there a crisis of meaning and purpose where you're questioning the path that you're on? Is there more life, more liberty, more happiness to be had, you think, that you're yearning for, that you're looking out there someplace for? Have you tried everything that you can think of to get there and still feeling unfulfilled? Are you tired of being afraid? Are you tired of being anxious, worried, thinking obsessively, trying to control everything because of the fear that you feel or the anxiety? Are you hearing yourself, always defending yourself (laughs) and your beliefs, debating others about issues all across the spectrum, whether they're personal, political, religious? Are you always on that debating cycle? Are you often annoyed? Are you easily offended? Are you indignant at others and the way they live and lifestyles and choices and kind of life in general. Mary and I watched a very bad movie, but I like the title. 
It was, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. <laughs> that was the title of the movie. It's like, do you feel that way? Stop the world, I want to get off. It's like all of this divine dissatisfaction can point us, can motivate us if we will let it. Until we're willing to see that all of this is just fear talking, that it's not you, not your rightful way of life. You'll never begin to be convinced, completely convinced that you have unalienable rights that you can claim at any time. You'll never overcome the fear of a real revolution. And returning to the bulletins, just take a look at the last paragraph of the Declaration. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all the other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. Wow. That's bold. That's unequivocal. That's as much of a declarative statement as you can possibly make. What gave them the chutzpah to do that? They believed in these unalienable rights. They believed that they came from God and they believed that it was their right and their duty to move in such a direction that they could reclaim them because a power stood in their way. That's what it looks like to be bold. That's what it looks like to be unequivocal. What will it look like in our lives to be that bold to be that convinced. When we are as convinced as they are, when we are as convinced as Jesus, as Francis, of God's unalienable right to us, the right to love, the right to connection, the right to a seat at the table, then we can be that bold. We can mount our own interior revolution. And what this looks like in your life depends on what tyrant fear has set up in your life? Whatever it is that makes you passive, whatever it is that keeps you frozen in place, and only you know that. But once you've identified the tyrant, and once you have become convinced of the unalienable right, then change is possible. And we can become absolutely convinced that these rights to a love that we can never lose will propel us unerringly to exactly where we are supposed to be in God, in Christ, and in our families and in all of our relationships. Let's be bold. And the first step to being bold is to let God play through our lives, to let go of what we think we know 
and let God slowly do that process of revealing that he actually is that unalienable right. That's the beginning. Let's pray. Father, we have to thank you for 241 years of an imperfect model in our lives, starting from a profound statement. Help us to be selective in our cynicism. Use it in a healthy way, but be willing to look through the imperfections of our society, our government, our families, and our church to those founding principles, to those core values that are still absolutely true and have weight and have something to teach us and something that we can use every single day to move toward you, to move toward the recognition that you love us the way that you do against everything that would say otherwise in our lives. Help us to see the truth so that we can be bold in moving toward you and tearing down and abolishing the structures in our life that keep us from you and from the full expression of that relationship. Thank you for every model that you've given us throughout time to help us to see that we can do this as well, Lord. Thank you for loving us and giving us everything that we need every single moment and never letting us forget that we can only love in return because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand.